Amen to the singing, wonderful songs. Singing's not just to warm you up for the sermon. Sermon's important, the Word of God's important, but singing is worship. It's not a warm-up, an emotional roller coaster to get you feeling certain things. You will feel certain things if you're a believer worshiping God, but prayer, singing, reading of Scripture, and preaching of the Word, they're all elements of worship. The elements we're commanded to do as a church. And you should find both encouragement and admonition in those things. Well, now we do turn to the Word of God. We want to hear from God's Word. We want to hear it opened up. We want to hear it explained, applied. What's called expositional preaching or expository sermons. Where the preacher takes the text and and does tell you this is what the text means. This is what the Word of God says. And even suggest at times how to live out what the Word of God does teach us. And today is another one of those moments in our church where we finish a book. We finish an expository series. Today the book is Ecclesiastes, the very last sermon in the series on Ecclesiastes. And I don't know about you, but it's only been seven months that we've been in this book. And it feels like maybe one or two years. Anybody else like that? Amen. I mean, it... Maybe that's meant to be that way as we read how fast life goes by, how it's a vapor, how it's here one day and gone the next. Well, I want to read to you the last section here, the epilogue, the conclusion of the book. Once all's been heard, once he said everything in the book, this is how he closes out the book, starting in Ecclesiastes 12.9. In addition to being a wise man, The preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Have you ever read a book and wondered, where is this author going with the story? Maybe you listen to a sermon and wonder, where is this pastor going with the sermon? How is he going to wrap all this up? How is he going to put all of this together? Well, Ecclesiastes is both a book and a preacher, both a sermon. And you probably wondered as we went throughout the book, where is this all headed? He's talking about this problem and that problem and all the sins that are out there and all the idols that Solomon went after that he followed. He searched after meaning in life everywhere, in every major category that a person could look at. He went into just wisdom. Maybe man has wisdom that will figure out why we're here, what we're supposed to do, what's our purpose in life under the sun, on the earth. And he determined that's not it. And then he said, well, maybe I'll go after my lusts. I'll go after money and I'll raise up money and all my wealth and all my buildings, and all my houses, and maybe that's where meaning and purpose can be found. 
the answer to life. And he starts off the book just saying, what is the point of life? What's the profit? What's the advantage after all that we've done in this life? Well, he's trying different things, money, women. He even tries drinking. None of it satisfies. None of it gives meaning. It all comes to a point where you realize this is just another idol. This is my God. This is the thing that I love. This is the thing that I serve. And then suddenly he throws in some things about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and then he's right back to talking about the realistic problems in this world. Sin. How man is inherently sinful. How there's problems with the king and there's problems with the king's subjects. And there's problems in the household and there's problems in marriage. But there has been a theme throughout, hasn't there, about enjoy life that God has given you with all the gifts that he's given you under the sun. If you're truly one of his, then you can enjoy life. Even amidst all the sin, even amidst all the problems, the sadness, the pain, the curse that we all have to live under. There is enjoyment to be had if you're one of God's children, if you truly fear the Lord. That's where he's been going with the story, and that's where he eventually makes it very plain in this last section what his purpose is. Really, this last section that I read to you breaks into two sections, two main sections. Verse 9 starts a section, and verse 12 starts a section. They both have the same Hebrew word that starts it. It's the idea of an addition to, above all, beyond what I've just said in this whole book, I have two things he says I want to bring before you in my conclusion. Let's go back to chapter 1 just so we can see how he started the book. Because the same two things he started the book with are the same two that he ends the book with, except he makes a slight change on the second one. Look how he started the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the author, the preacher, the one who taught this to young people, the young leaders, those who are the nobles, those who would eventually lead the country, the nation. And he's recorded it for us in a book. So there's the author. What's his message? Well, it starts out, vanity of vanities, which is better translated uh, just the Hebrew word, havel, vapor of vapors, breath of breaths. Everything is just a breath. Everything is a vapor. Everything is a fleeting vapor. And he investigates all of that in the book. And then verse 3, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Because life is a vapor, what's the point? So he's explored different options. Now he comes to the end, and he's going to say, Beyond all that I've already taught you, here are the last two things I want you to remember. And again, we're going to talk about the author and the message. He has some additional things to say about the author, and he has some new information. Thank the Lord, he has some new information to say here about the message. Otherwise, you might leave this book wondering what's going on. Now, I've tried to remind you along the way what the theme is. If you dig in, if you study, if you try to put it all together, but a lot of people leave Ecclesiastes with a pessimistic view of life, with a bad attitude about life. And they have a hard time fitting it in with other books of the Bible. Well, let's see how Solomon ends his book. First of all, let's talk more about the author. Verses 9 through 11 
talk about the author. Now, when we started the book, I told you that the word preacher here, which he uses again in verse 9, is the Hebrew word koaleth. Koaleth is a preacher, an assembler. It's not a person's name, it's a title. It's somebody who gathers people in an assembly for the purpose of addressing them. So some translations will call it a teacher. Other people argue maybe debater is the right word. Maybe professor is a good word. But most translations just go with preacher. And I think it's a good word because he's assembling a group of young people and he's proclaiming this message. And it's not just teaching, but he's also making application. He's giving commands to us, which is what preaching is. It's both teaching and application, imperatives, act upon what you have learned. And so he assembles these people and he makes a public proclamation to them. Well, who is this? I have argued that it's Solomon. Many scholars and commentators would disagree. Others would agree that it is Solomon. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. We just read verse 1. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. How many sons did David have? Well, he had quite a few. How many were kings in Jerusalem? Only one. Now, sometimes son means grandson. But again, verse 12, over Israel, the whole nation. There was only one man who fits that, and that's King Solomon. So this is the belief of most of church history. It's not until recently, last hundred years or so, that people have thought someone else might be the author. But I hold it as Solomon, and I think even this text today will show us, will prove to us that it is King Solomon. That's important, because what happened with Solomon? He was a sinner just like us. The wisest man who ever lived was a sinner. Now, Jesus, of course, was the wisest, but he never sinned. Solomon, given all this wisdom, still sinned. The king, he had everything, and he still fell into temptation. His wives led him to worship false gods, led him to worship idols, to build high places so the people of Israel would follow the king and worship at those places. And here he is at the end of life. I think he's at the end of life. And he says, it was pointless. All of that was for nothing. The only thing that matters is God and what's going to happen after this life. So the book was written, I think, as a repentance book, as a book of lessons, as a book of him saying, look, I messed up. I sinned, and here's all the things I learned. And I don't want you young people, and I don't want you believers today, this would be me saying this to y'all, to do this thing that he has done here. All the sin that is recorded for Solomon in the book. So let's dig into the lessons the author teaches us about himself. He taught knowledge, first of all. He taught knowledge in verse 9. We need knowledge. The Christian life is not one where you're saved and then you never learn. In fact, a disciple of Christ is a learner of Christ. A disciple is a learner. And Solomon says, in addition to being a wise man, now he's going to talk about himself in the third person. This happens in the Bible sometimes. David does this. Moses does this. Other people do this. Solomon was a wise man. A man given wisdom by God. He was not a worldly, naturally-minded man. He didn't just think about things in the world and of the world. He is a man gifted by God with wisdom. Wisdom to rule as king, yes, but also wisdom to teach others. It says here 
that he's a wise man who taught the people. The commentator Walt Kaiser says, the term wise here marked him as a member of one of the three great institutions. You're probably familiar with prophets. You're probably familiar with priests in the Bible. But there were also wise men. Kaiser goes on to say that these wise men would dispense wisdom given by God to the people. They would teach the Bible to the people through their wisdom. So God had given Solomon wisdom. He had moved Solomon to write this book, to write other books of Scripture, so that God's people could grow in discernment. That's what wisdom is really about. It's discernment. What's the right decision in this situation? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I move? What kind of church should I look for? What kind of book should I read? Should I spend my time doing this or doing that? All of those need discernment. And you need wisdom so you can make good choices in life. Live out a good, practical life to the glory of God. He taught knowledge, it says. He was a wise man. The preacher also taught the people knowledge. He pondered, he searched out, he arranged many proverbs. This basically tells us how the book was written. This is not a man just sitting down and thinking, what kind of crazy things can I put in a book and slip into the Bible? No, he thought about it. He thought about it, and he was very pastoral. He wanted to help the people. And there's a skill to writing the wisdom books that Solomon wrote. He wrote Ecclesiastes, he wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Song of Songs. Those are the wisdom books that Solomon wrote. Also a couple of Psalms, 72 and 127. But he taught the people this wisdom. He had a pastoral heart. He's not an academic. He's not just sitting there in a library full of scrolls and sort of just staring at the scrolls and picking his navel. He's learning so he can teach others. He's using the wisdom that God has given him and helping others live a more godly life. Yes, there was a time that he sinned and wandered off, but now he's coming back and dispensing that wisdom. Look how he put this wisdom together in a book like Ecclesiastes. It says he pondered. Literally, the word is that he weighed it out. Careful consideration was given. He weighed those conclusions carefully. He searched out, it says. He was thorough. He was diligent in searching for wisdom and writing it down. And he arranged it. He put together in an orderly fashion. And it even had an artistic flavor as he arranged it. It's his organization. Now we're going to learn that it's all inspired by God. But Solomon chose how to arrange these things. He chose what to include and what not to include. And sometimes it may seem like there's no order to this book. In fact, many people have looked at Ecclesiastes and said there's no order. It's just a bunch of proverbs and stories jumbled together. But there is order. It says he arranged it. We just need to study further. Whenever you're studying the Bible and it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't mean that God messed up. It doesn't mean that the writer, the human writer of Scripture messed up. It simply means we need to study it. We need to dig in. We need to compare it to other passages. Look at the context. Now, it says he wrote many Proverbs. Many. Of course, I think this includes Ecclesiastes, but also the book of Proverbs. Go with me to 1 Kings 4. Go back in your Bibles. If you'd like to turn there, 1 Kings 4. And we've looked at this before, but Solomon wrote a lot of Proverbs. 4.31. It says, For he was wiser than all men. And then it lists some men's names. And continuing on, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. 
We don't even have all of the 3,000, even if we include all of Ecclesiastes. It still doesn't add up to 3,000 Proverbs with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. His songs were 1,005. We only have two of them in the book of Psalms. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Okay, that's nice. So what? What does that matter to us today, 3,000 years later? Because God didn't just put a fool up there to write the book. In fact, he talks a lot about foolish people in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a wise man. This is a man who knew how to write things. Can you write Proverbs? Can you write a song today? How would you like to sit down and just be a songwriter? Most of us would really struggle with that, right? Even those who are maybe gifted at it, it would be hard to match some of the things that we find in the Bible with your skill, with your precision, with your knowledge. The word for Proverbs here in Hebrew is masal. And it doesn't just mean short, pithy statements like the book of Proverbs. It can include anything that is teaching from a wisdom context. It's a very wide range of meaning, meaning fables, riddles, sayings, parables, short, pithy statements like we generally think of as well in the book of Proverbs. So he is writing these things, and it tells us more about what he wrote. Secondly, the author put down, he wrote, pleasing and true words. They're pleasing and they're true. We're not even to the point of why they're there. He's just saying, here's what he did with the book of Ecclesiastes. You almost get the sense that people are going to look at this book and not think well of it in later times. And of course, that is the case today. Many liberal commentators will say simply, Ecclesiastes should not be in the Bible. They say it doesn't fit with the rest of the Old Testament. But it does. The preacher here, he's pondering, he's searching, he's arranging. What's the result of that? He sought to find delightful words. The idea here is that his words are joyful, pleasing, satisfying, delightful. They're aesthetically pleasing. They're designed to give pleasure through beauty. There's poetry here, proverbs, uh, parables, refrains, parallelisms, all those people that love literary devices. You can find them all over the book of Ecclesiastes. They're pleasing to the heart. They're pleasing to the mind intellectually. This book will challenge you. Go back and read chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Try to figure that out without consulting anyone else, any other commentary, any other sermons. These are challenging, but they're challenging to the mind. It's a good thing. They're pleasing and theologically pleasing. They challenge your theology. God is sovereign. God is using all the sin in the world to His ultimate purpose. He's providential. He is controlling all things for His purpose. Some people like to think that God is not sovereign. They like to think that everything's random. It's just chaos in the world. And Solomon, he says, I know the world thinks like this, but I have a different message for you. That God is sovereign. There's a time for everything, he says. There's a time for everything that happens under the sun, and it's all to the glory of God. He also writes words of truth correctly. So not just pleasing, but correctly. True. They're truth. They're upright. He wrote sincerely without any falsehood. He's not trying to trick you. 
Now, it might seem like that as you read. It seems like it's difficult, it's challenging, but he's not trying to trick. There's no falsehood here. God's word is both pleasant and upright. If Ecclesiastes is like that, certainly the whole Bible could be described as that. It's pleasing to read. It's upright. It's truthful. One commentator said to be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool. To be pleasant but not upright is to be a charlatan. Solomon did not write this book to tickle your ears. He did not preach this sermon or series of sermons in Ecclesiastes to tickle your ears. There's a lot of churches today that tickle your ears. You go there, they say they're going to proclaim the word of God, and you just leave feeling good about yourself, but not knowing much about God. You leave without a sense of who God really is. But you sure feel good when you leave. It feels great. You feel like you're something really important. Well, Ecclesiastes is not that at all. You're a sinner. Don't be a fool, he says. All these examples of what foolishness is. But it's true. And it's pleasant when you step back and really look at what he's saying. Thirdly, the author corrects and stabilizes us. We really need this. We don't even think about what the Bible is doing in our life sometimes. Reading Scripture, understanding it, and applying it into our life corrects us and it stabilizes us. That's how these words function. Verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. You know what a goad is? It's a cattle prod in ancient times. Not the electric ones they have today, but a stick with a very sharp end to it that they would poke into the cattle and the oxen from behind to get them moving in the right direction. Because they're stubborn. They don't always want to move. They don't want to move in the direction that you want them to go. So what shepherds would do is jab these sticks into their behind, into their legs, into their back. And he says, these wise men, the words from wise men, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they're like goads. They're like cattle prods. They stimulate you to get you moving. We like to think that we all have a desire to live for the glory of God and God doesn't need to push us. We like to think the moment we're saved, we're just going to live for God every day. We're never going to be lazy. We're never going to drift off. We don't need your help. God we will just do it ourselves. Even here, new believers talking foolishly like that. Well, I know my past is sinful. I know this job that I had was sinful. I know these friends that I had are sinful, but I can handle it. I can stick with them. We need goads. We need prods to move us along in life. Otherwise, we're just going to stay put where we're at and drift off. Otherwise, we're going to be lazy. We're going to drift off course. Now, sometimes, look, sometimes the lesson is painful. Sometimes we read Ecclesiastes and we see ourselves somewhere in the book. You should have by now as we've gone through it, if you've been here for all the sermons. You should see yourself in Scripture. This isn't just for the Israelites. See, that's the mistake we make. You know, that's for the Israelites. That's for the person sitting next to me in church. That's for my, my wife. I really wish she would listen to this and do what the book says. No, it's for each of us individually. Cattle prods moving us along, motivating us to live for the Lord while we're on this earth under the sun. He also says, masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. Well-driven nails. These are large tent pegs. The large ones, like the one that J.L. used to go through the head of a general that was attacking Israel, if you know that story. 
large tent pegs that would hold down the tent and keep it from blowing away. Also, they would hang things on a tent peg that they hammered on the main post, the main beam of the tent. It was strong. It was stable. It it kept the tent in place. And so these collections are collections of wisdom, collections of Proverbs. And if you master them, literally the word is Lord, a Lord of these collections, not, not a person who writes them, but a person who studies and applies it. Dad, you need to go through Proverbs with your kids. You need to take your family through the book of Proverbs multiple times. And then when they get a little older and you're a little more advanced in your biblical interpretation skills, you can go through Ecclesiastes as well. Over and over. We've gone through Proverbs many times with my children. Masters of these collections. Well-driven nails is what they are. They hold us firmly if we study them, believe them, put them into practice. They stabilize our Christian life. We don't get blown away by every wind of doctrine if we know God's Word. Fourthly, the author wrote God's words. They're not just the thoughts of an insane man. They're not just the thoughts of an unbeliever. They're not speculative wisdom. A lot of people say that this book, even conservative Bible scholars will say Ecclesiastes is speculative wisdom. It's just a man thinking out loud, writing down his thoughts, and they're there to teach us to not be like this person who's speculating all the time. Look at verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. This is the ultimate author of the book. This is the ultimate author of the whole Bible. These words are given by one shepherd. Now, he can't be talking about himself. There are many writers in Scripture. Much of the Old Testament had already been written by the time Solomon came along. He's not just saying, I'm the only shepherd. He's saying there is one shepherd, the shepherd of Israel. There is one shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. He is giving Solomon the words. Not that Solomon is listening for a voice and writing down what he hears. No, Solomon is observing. He tells us, I've seen this and I've seen this. He's exploring his own paths in life, many of which were sinful. And then God is using all of that and moving him to write it all down. Isaiah forty eleven, Like a shepherd... He, this is God, will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He's a shepherd. He's watching over us. He's using these cattle prods and these nails to have an effect in our life. God is taking care of you through the Bible. As you read it, as you study it, as the Spirit in you applies it to your life, God is using that. This is basically telling us how the book came about. Solomon did the searching, the studying, the writing, but it all came from one shepherd. This matches with the New Testament doctrine of God's inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. When you disagree with the Bible and don't want to follow it, When you pick out a verse that you don't like, remember, God breathed that out. When people today, and it's very popular today to separate Paul from Jesus, they love Jesus, they don't like Paul's letters. Why? Because Paul is telling people how they should live now that they're a Christian. And they don't like that. Just remember, when you come across that, or if you tend to believe that, 
all Scripture is breathed out by God. Your problem is not with the preacher who's bringing the message. Your problem is with the actual text of the Bible. Second Peter 1.20 gives us some more insight into how this process works. How are things written down in Scripture and put in the Bible? Peter says, know this first of all. This is a great verse. God doesn't have to tell us how he did it, and he tells us how the Bible was written right here. Write it down, study it later. Second Peter 1.20 Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The prophecy are the words written down in Scripture. The words of God. That's what prophecy is. Words of God given to people. And it's not up to that person's interpretation. Peter did not sit down and just think about what he wanted to write. It wasn't a matter of Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark and John and Luke just sitting down thinking about, I wonder what I want to say today. I wonder what I want to write to the churches. No, it's not like that. For prophecy was never made by an act of human will. True prophecy from God does not come from man. It comes from God. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What does he mean? One shepherd, but he searched it out. He arranged it. He wrote it. Well, here's how it works. Men wrote the Bible. They wrote the words of God and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's all we know, and that's enough. That's more than we even needed to know. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us how the Bible was written. So Ecclesiastes was ultimately written by God himself through Solomon. And this work here is Solomon's diligent study, but ultimately it comes from God. Why so much about the author? Because he wants us to know this is not haphazard. Even though it's difficult at times, it's not thrown together and truly is God's word. Now, second main point, the last section here. Let's look at the message. What does this whole book mean? What is this about? Why do people struggle with interpreting this book? And I think there's a lot that go wrong with this. There's a lot of even godly people who go wrong with the book. They take it pessimistic. They distort it. They amend the text wherever they want. They'll say, well, can't say that. We're going to change a few Hebrew words. Translation comes out better. Even in Martin Luther's day, people were distorting this book. He says it's been so distorted by miserable commentaries of many writers that it's almost a bigger job to purify and defend the author from the notions which they have smuggled into him than it is to show his real meaning. Luther says, look, I spent all my time just combating the bad interpretations of Ecclesiastes. I'd never get around to talking about what it actually means. Well, he does have a message. He does have a point. And so let's look at that. First of all, he says that we ought to be warned of other books. He warns us of other books in verse 12. But beyond this, my son, my son's just a way to address the people that are learning from him, his original audience. And we're in a sense his son as we're learning from him like a son learns from his father. Be warned. Take heed. Wake up. Be warned. Be cautious. And here's a hit to all the people who want to collect tons of books. The writing of many books is endless. It never stops. There's always a man, there's always a man or woman out there writing books. There's even children now who supposedly have visitations to heaven and back, and they have their parents write the book for them. If that's the case in Solomon's day, the writing of many books is endless. What about today? How many books are being published today? Google Books did a study. I guess their goal in Google Books was to scan them all in. They gave up a few years ago on that. 
130 million, basically, books total have been printed by 2016. One, th- one million books published every year in the U.S. alone. So what is that, and, close to 140 million by now? Since the printing press was invented. That's a lot of books. 9,000 a year in religion and spirituality. You know they have that category if you go online? Religion and spirituality. That's everything from Bibles to tarot cards. 9,000 books are coming out every year trying to interpret how a man should live, how a man should worship, who the true God is. Now, how many do you think get that right? Not very many. Go look on Amazon and see what the bestsellers are in religion and spirituality. Go down to Barnes & Noble, go to the Christian section, and see who some of the prominent authors are, the bestsellers. That's why he says it's endless. They just keep producing them. Back then it would have been scrolls, of course. And excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Before he even tells us about God, he's saying, look, don't search everywhere else. Literally, much study is a weariness of the flesh. There's so many books. There's so little time. And if you try to put your Bible down and find wisdom and find how to live a godly life outside of the Bible, you're just going to wear yourself out. You're just going to wear yourself out. The Bible has to be your primary book. Be careful, he says, of wisdom from other sources. It's not the same as Scripture. And many of us know that, but sometimes we hold up our favorite preacher, favorite pastor, our favorite theologian, to be equal to or even above Scripture. We would never admit it, but sometimes we do. We'll believe a certain thing because our favorite pastor taught that. Even though the Bible seems to go against what our favorite pastor taught, and usually our favorite pastor is somebody online that we first listened to when we were saved or became reformed. What does the Bible say? That's what matters first and is primary in our Christian life. If you try to study and find wisdom in the world, it will wear you out. It'll just wear you out. Even people who preach and teach know this because if you spend a lot of time in commentaries, it'll just wear you out. I mean, I'm more exhausted just reading the commentaries on Ecclesiastes than I've ever been in ministry reading something other than the Bible. At some point, I just have to give up the week and go back to the Word and look at the original languages, which I do in the beginning. But then it's like you go into the weeds with some of these commentators. Into the weeds. Sometimes you're past the weeds and in the ocean at the bottom of the ocean. And by then I usually just chunk those commentaries. I'm halfway through Ecclesiastes. I'm done with that. I'm going to sell it back somewhere, throw it in the trash. Others are more helpful. But here he's dealing really with the books that say they have wisdom. The books that propose some great idea. Some new way to get to God. Some new way to be saved. This is why Spurgeon said, visit many good books. Spurgeon was for reading. He had a lot to say about how to choose good books for reading. He said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. A lot of guys will say, I don't have time to read. You better be reading the Bible. And if you don't have time to read anything else, fine. Many of us do actually have time to read when we take away our social media, internet, and TV. But that's fine. If you only have time to read the Bible, read that. That's why you should probably read that first. Otherwise, you'll get distracted throughout your day. Even if you read other things, it's hard sometimes to get back to the Bible. Other books can be helpful. He's not saying that. Solomon's just saying, be careful. You devote yourself. You put lots of wisdom towards that. 
are in lots of excessive devotion towards that, and you're going to wear yourself out. But even Paul said, 2 Timothy 4, he said, When you come, talking to Timothy, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Now, the Bible's got to be in there. Probably his Old Testament, maybe his Greek translation of the Old Testament, but there are other books as well. So it's not to say you can never read another book. We have a lot of good books in the bookstore, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. Secondly, the message continues. Verse 13, the message applies the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Here it is. Here's the conclusion, literally the end of the matter. When all has been heard, when everything in the book's been read, when you've gone through it and tried to understand the message. Here it is. Fear God. That's the first thing he says. Now, we don't always want to hear that. You know, where is the gospel in fear God? That sounds a lot like law. That sounds like law, pastor. Fear God. That's what he says. Fear God. That's the conclusion. Now, he's going to go on to talk about law. He's going to talk about commandments. But first, and notice it is first, fear God. That's an essential aspect of wisdom. You can't even be wise if you don't fear God. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of true knowledge is fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2.5 Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 3.7 do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. That's starting to sound a little bit more like the gospel. Fear the Lord and turn away. Repent. Literally repent of evil. Fear of God here in this passage that we're looking at in all the Old Testament passage does not mean a fear of God's condemnation for the believer. He's not saying be scared that you're going to go to hell. And so you're always whimpering in the corner, just hoping that you were good enough that day to somehow earn credit with God. That's the unbeliever's fear of God. That's rightly what an unbeliever should be feeling. They should be so scared of God that they want to hide in caves like they're going to do in the end times, where they hide under the rocks and say, let the rocks fall on us rather than the wrath of God. That's not what he's saying. He's writing to believers, followers of God, God's people. The believer must not be terrified like that, that God is somehow going to send them to hell if they sin today. The believer is supposed to fear God in the sense that they have a love for God, a zeal for Yahweh, the God of Israel, a love for God the Father. Yes, it's awe. Yes, it's respect. It's reverence. We sing about that. We talk about that. But it's even more than reverence. If you pick up the book, I think it's just called Fear and Trembling that we have in the bookstore. He goes through all the texts. We don't have time to go through them all, but I do want to focus in on Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Turn forward there and let's look at how this is a short way to tell us the good news. Fear God doesn't sound like good news, but it is, especially if you're a believer. But even for the unbeliever, if you understand it, it's good news. Jeremiah 33, verse 8. Israel is being taken into captivity. They're going to Babylon. But God promises to bring them back. And in that promise, he gives them a promise of a new covenant. The same new covenant that all believers receive 
today. The same new covenant we're going to remember when we drink the cup in the Lord's Supper. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. God's going to cleanse us from sin. His people. That sounds like good news. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. Oh, he's going to completely forgive them. And that is really good news. That's the best news that anyone could hear today. Because we're all sinners here. And God's going to do that if you're in the new covenant. And he goes on. And by which they have transgressed against me. We've broken God's law. We've transgressed the boundaries. Everyone here. And God says, if you're his, he promises to forgive and cleanse you. And it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth. His people will be joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth because they'll point to God's name. The nations will hear of all the good that I do for them. People will hear about God because of what he did for Israel, because of what he does for the church. And now look at the rest of this. The nations, they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Fear and tremble. We should fear God. We should tremble before God. It's good. It's God's peace. It's God's cleansing. Good and peace with fear and trembling. Psalm 118.4 Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can say that but believers? Only believers can say His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 130 verse 4 But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You see that? He ties forgiveness and the fear of God together. This is not unbelieving fear. This is not fear of judgment. This is a reverence and an awe for God and a love for God and a zeal for God. It's the idea of loving God with all that you are. And you don't want to displease Him because of who He is. Not because you're scared of going into eternal punishment. This is what Nehemiah said in his prayer, Nehemiah 1.11. He's asking God, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. God's servants find great joy in fearing His name. They delight, he says. We, your people, delight to fear your name. Is that in the New Testament? Fear of God? Sometimes people think, well, the Old Testament's all about wrath and fear and anger. And the New Testament's about love and peace and grace. Well, those are both Testaments. God has wrath in the New and there's grace in the Old. But you will find this idea of fear in the new. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, his believers. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God's going to cast into hell the unbelievers who persecute believers. But as a follower, you have a different kind of fear. It's a zeal. It's a jealousy for your God. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't work for it, but work it out. Once you're saved, work it out with fear and trembling. Act throughout your life with a fear of God and a trembling before Him. Sinclair Ferguson says to fear God, to trust God, to love God, to know God. These are really one and the same thing. We don't think of that in our modern context, that fear is also love. But it is when it comes to God. We can kind of get the sense of that with our earthly father. If you had a a godly Christian earthly father, and when you were younger, you had a certain fear of him. 
Not that he was going to kick you out of the family, but out of respect, out of awe. But God is so much more. That's why we sing an amazing grace to him. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace, fear, they go together. A true fear of God, a real godly fear of him is part of his grace. And grace, my fears, relieved. So as an unbeliever, we had a fear that we were going to be cast into hell. Those fears were relieved, but we were truly taught to fear God through his grace. Solomon goes on to say, and keep his commandments, because this applies to everyone. This is literally what our life is about as a Christian, to obey God, to live out what he's told us, to be doers of the word. And notice the order, fear God first, then obey his commandments. If you get those mixed up, that's legalism. If you get those mixed up, you're going to try to earn your way to God by obeying his commandments first. He said, life is a vapor. Life is a mist all throughout the book. What's the conclusion of the matter? Fear God and obey his commandments. Why? Last point quickly. He's going to explain the reason for that. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You're going to stand before God someday. Each and every one of you, if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in him, if you trusted him for your salvation, then your sins are forgiven. There's no judgment. Christ has already paid the penalty. But Solomon says, if you didn't, God's going to judge you. If you haven't put your faith in God fully, really put your faith in him and turn from your sin, God is going to weigh out your sin. And one sin is all it takes. It's not a scale where you just put your good works versus your bad works. That won't even work anyway on the scale. Because one sin completely flips the scale. And that's all it takes for you to be sent to hell. So why not listen to the message of Ecclesiastes here? Why not believe? Why not fear God? Why not trust him for your salvation through his Messiah, Jesus Christ? Why would you want to wait until this short life is over and then think somehow your good will outweigh your bad? You're born with a sinful nature. You started sinning before you even knew the word sin. There's no hope without Christ. There's no hope without God's Savior that he sent to redeem us from our sin. What's the message? Fear God. Love him. That means loving his Messiah. That means coming to Christ. We know more today even than Solomon did back then. And we can say, come to Jesus and then live it out. Now that you're saved, now live it out. Obey the Lord. Love God, fear God, and live out his commandments. That's what we're called to do. Lord, we do pray that you would help us with that. As Christians, sometimes we need these goads. We need these tent pegs. We need you to prod us, to keep us stable, firm. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to live for you. Your son, Jesus, said that those who love him will follow his commandments. And when we stumble, Lord, Lift us back up as we know that you do with your grace, with your peace, with your mercy. And prod us on, Lord, to keep persevering in the faith. And we pray for any unbelievers today that heard this message, that they would truly fear you. That they would come to a a knowledge of Jesus Christ and trust in him. We know you save people all the time. We pray that it would even be done here today. In the name of Christ, we ask this. Amen.